Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Heather Stevens, who's a climate change expert. She's also a very successful property investor in her own right, getting started from a young age and amassing an impressive diversified portfolio. But the real focus of this interview today is about climate change and the impacts on the property market and the implications for property investors. So we talk about the problems, the costs of climate change, the mitigation strategies, and what's happening with property when we're looking at in terms of bushfire zones, flood zones, and where the employment nodes are heading to based on the impacts of climate change. I think it's a fascinating interview and I really hope you enjoy it. Here's Heather. Heather Stevens, thanks for joining us on Geared for Growth. Good morning, nice to be here. So let's kick things off. Who are you and what do you do? Well, my name's Heather, as you just said, and I'm a 36-year-old mother of two beautiful boys, but I also have a bit of a passion in property and also um, a lifelong career and passion in climate change and environmental science. So in terms of property, I've bought my first property at 24. So I wow, think that's, that's pretty, pretty young, young to, be, to young. be playing with property. And um, yeah, and fortunately for me, I just bought property that sort of, it was a block of land in Tasmania actually, and it doubled in like a year. Right. <laughs> so that just gave me a really great boost to, to starting off doing other properties so that then might have I been went the, on the, the, the boom before the current one because it's been going gangbusters recently and a big lull in the middle so yeah right. I think I had a boom um, and then a lull and then another boom so that just sort of gave me a lot of confidence to keep trying and I think I've gone through I've had five or six properties including yep. a few extra block of lands and um, I've just sold my first property over that time period so that's been a really positive experience as well yeah awesome and what sort of what sort of properties are you focusing on is there any particular sort of are you location based or is it do you yep. look at demographics or what well, is it i always go for standalone houses i've not yet gone into apartments or any commercial um property i just think standalone gives me a lot of flexibility to do things like if i want to do extensions or granny flats or developments and also I find it's easier to get tenants when you have a standalone property than an apartment in your experience. Um, I have mainly focused in Newcastle which is where I live and that's because I do self-manage the property so it means that I can go there and be much more responsive to fixing a washer. I'd rather do it myself than pay a plumber $150 for the pleasure but I have just recently started investing back in Tasmania because of my passion in um, thinking about climate friendly locations and so that one now um, it's a little bit harder to get to to do the maintenance but it gives me a nice tax-free excuse for a couple of good holidays a couple of times a year. Yeah although there's been some some changes to that lately i was <laughs> chatting to an accountant hopefully you've, you've prepaid some of those expenses. right that's, oh, that, that's to find out key. more about that that's a whole mm. other podcast so um let's get on to climate change so can we just sort of agree that it's a thing <laughs> there's a bit there's a bit of conjecture but it's not scientific conjecture is it well look 97 percent of scientists think that climate change is real is human induced and is a danger so I would say that as a property investor, if 97% of uh, economists said that your suburb you're investing in was going to tank, you'd probably take that really seriously. So yeah. I think that and there's a high confidence in the um, implications of climate change. And I, I certainly, in my experience of working in this space for 15 years, haven't seen the conspiracies. I wish yeah. I was paying bucket loads to tell um, furfies, but that's just not the case. It's, it's pretty basic physics, really. Um, the atmosphere is, if you wanted to make a nice analogy, the Earth, imagine the Earth's the size of an apple. Our atmosphere is 
the thickness of the apple's skin. Right. It's not a lot of space. And over the last nearly million years, the concentration of carbon dioxide, which is the most common greenhouse gas that gets talked about, has never gone above more than about 300 parts per million. Mm -hmm. So it sort of sat in a band of around 170 to 300 parts per million. Yep. It's not a very long um, a band. We're currently sitting at 401 parts per million. Right. So over the last million years, that fluctuation of 100 parts has been the differences in ice ages. So at the end of the last ice age, there was a two kilometer sheet of ice over Manhattan. So it's a huge difference in temperature for a fairly small, modest amount of carbon change. Yep. We're currently sitting at 403, which is pretty scary. Yep. Um, what really scares me too is that before I retire, we're likely to hit, if we continue on this trajectory, 600 parts per million. Right. And you don't have to be a climatologist to go, well, that's going to probably <laughs> have a bit of a big impact on, on temperatures. Yep. So. And, and, and I guess the, the thing that people struggle to get their head around is that we might say, oh, it's gone, the, the globe has gone up by... 0.8 of a degree in the last 100 years or whatever. I think that's technically almost close. Yep. Correct if I'm wrong. And, and people just kind of think, oh, well, I could live with that. Like, yeah. It's just like <laughs> if it's 30, it's, you know, it's almost 31 sort of thing. But there's also the pace of economic change in the developing areas. Like every country that sort of industrializes and goes through a big growth phase like we're seeing with China, they sort of really ramp up. The, their pollution and their contribution to greenhouse gases mm. and we're really we're really seeing that with with India and China aren't mm. we? yeah well I like your first point about that point eight so we have only experience well we have experience about point eight and people think oh you know if I lived in Melbourne point eight might make my winters a bit nicer but another nice analogy is to think about your core body temperature sure mm -hmm. we can handle fluctuations of 20 degrees 30 degrees in our day-to-day -day life but if your core body temperature changes by even a few degrees so 37 degrees you're feeling pretty healthy 38 degrees you might call in sick 39 degrees, 40 degrees, you're dead. Yeah. So, I mean, a small fluctuation in our internal body temperature has a huge impact on our health and well-being, and that's the same for the, the globe. So, yes, we can handle large fluctuations day to day, summer to winter, but it's that um, that core temperature change over the globe scale, yeah. which is much more concerning. And people talk about the history of, of the planet. There's been extreme weather events. There's been ice ages, and I'm sure we've had you know, species wiped out and, and all that sort of thing. But these were things that were happening because of the natural sort of equilibrium and the changes were happening over a very, very long scale. That's right. Is that the big difference? With Absolutely. The so there was time for adaptations. Adaptation yeah. is to prepare for the change. And if change is happening over several thousands of years, well, there's a lot of chance for species to migrate. So whether it's a plant species or, or a, you know, an animal species, then they could have time to move to a place where it is more favourable for that climate. Our change is happening over decades, if you know, if not just a century. So yeah. um, it's happening much, much faster, and I don't think we have the ability to. And it's also happening at a global scale, whereas in the past things might have been more localized. Yeah, and getting back to those three percent of scientists, I'm, there were scientists that said that smoking tobacco was good for <laughs> you, and, and and really the incentive, uh, I guess, the money is not on the side of the people saying, hey, we should slow down and mm. look after the environment. Mm. It's it's uh, I think it's a pretty silly argument. Yeah. So you're you're working on a PhD around climate change and extreme weather events. Can you tell us a bit more about? Yeah, that? sure. I'm pretty passionate about it. It's a pretty interesting topic. It's not to do with property, but perhaps it will we'll it'll collide at some point. So I'm interested in heat waves and obviously um, temperature getting hotter is something that 
is one of the biggest impacts of climate change. I mean, there was a study that came out recently. They're expecting, you know, 50 degree days in Sydney in, in, in the future. So imagine coming home from work on a 50 degree day. Mm. My interest with research is looking at data around crime. So does hot weather create more crime? So really, essentially, does the hot weather send you a bit batshit crazy? Wow. Well, we've heard <laughs> the story the about, uh, you know, in, in Darwin. Mango madness. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And then feel like everyone has a story about, oh, that really hot day. I just cracked it and yelled or, you know, did something crazy. Road rage. So my study has been looking at crime, particularly aggressive crimes, right. and looking at is it impacted by temperature? And if so, where, why? And most importantly, what are we going to do about it? So trying to engage with, you know, police and health services yep. to try and start thinking about if there's a heat wave warning coming up, maybe putting more resources into domestic violence support or patrolling areas at risk. Wow. So Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. It's not something that I would think about. Like, you know, well, you will now on a hot day. You'll think, know. do I want to try and stab someone? Maybe. Do I leave the keys <laughs> on the beach towel if it's a really hot day? So, so obviously there's... there's a lot of implications for property investors who are sort of the, the main beneficiaries is maybe too strong of a word of the podcast, but mm-hmm. let's call them the listeners. Um, the, the climate change and, and climate science is, is not really a left field thing that only a couple of environmentalists are talking about. We're, we're talking serious institutional investment funds and super funds are across climate change. And there's, if you dig for five seconds you'll find there's plenty of studies. Why is it something that we're not really hearing about how climate change and extreme weather events are factored into investing? Yeah, that's a good question. So first of all, you're absolutely right. The very first shakers and movers around climate change has been insurance property um, Mm. businesses. And insurance, of course, they care because they're the ones who are paying for the natural disasters when they come through and they don't want to be losing their bottom line. So insurance companies have always been the ones that have back, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, they've been starting to talk about this and act on this. As to why it doesn't get talked about at a more public scale, it could be political. I mean, yeah. people um, have a tendency to not use the word climate change, but things like natural disasters or um, resilience or, you know, other words, because I guess climate change has got a bit of a bit of a um, stigma about being something that's almost religious or political rather than actually about basic science and numbers yeah, and figures. Yeah, it's almost like a football team which side are you on, which <laughs> that's just right. seems a bit absurd. Or if you take away the word and just say, I want to start talking about resilience and future preparedness, yeah. suddenly it becomes a lot easier to have those conversations. Right. So in a study by the ANU, they outlined seven construction sector risks. And I think with property investors... Obviously, there are construction sector risks that, that have implications right. for mm-hmm. investors, including you know the actual cost of building an asset, which which flows on. The first one that they touched on was was hailstorms, and and the the evidence said that the ninety nine Sydney storm damage in today's dollars was was three point three billion mm. worth of damage. Now that's that's an important number for yeah. insurance companies, but for property investors as, as well. Absolutely, insurance is one of the biggest drivers that I would say for any property investor should think about when buying a place or keeping a place that they have. So insurance don't want to lose their bottom line. As I said, they'll pass that cost on to you. So first of all, they're going to pass it on to everyone. So globally, insurance prices, premiums are rising, but they will target areas that are more at risk. So if you are in a risk, so hailstones is what you mentioned, but also say flooding, um, cyclones, bushfire, flood risk, they'll either increase your premiums astronomically, and I'm sure everyone's heard that story of someone who had a $10,000 insurance bill, Mm. or they might just pull out entirely. There are insurance companies that just will not touch certain suburbs. 
And what that means is if in the future you find that you have a property that's uninsurable, what does that mean for having a loan? So mm. if you go to buy a property that is uninsurable, the bank's not going to be lending you money on a house that they know is at risk. Yep. So certainly insurance premiums, not just finding out what they are for this year, but thinking about what they might be next year, the year after, the year after that. So yep. certainly, um, yeah, that's where you've, your dollars are going to have to be to be allocated. Yeah, and I, and I had a letter recently from uh, a finance company that I have a, a loan with, I won't mention them, <laughs> um, and they said, uh, as a condition of this loan for an investment property, you have to furnish us with your updated uh, insurance documentation because they want to know that it's covered. Yeah. Because if anything was, was to happen to it, they want to make sure that their assets being protected. Yeah, so that seems really obvious. No one has ever come back to me and said, can you please continue to provide your insurance policies year to year from yeah. my mortgages? And I'm really surprised. Maybe my reputation precedes <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Maybe there. you have a house in a bushfire zone. <laughs> um, so rainfall and flooding was the next one. Um, Brisbane, Victoria and Tassie floods in, in 10 and 11, they were saying, $5.6 billion worth of damage to property infrastructure and economic mm. activity. Economic activity is a funny one because people think if there's a natural disaster, we just have to rebuild the stuff. Mm. But people aren't working, businesses aren't trading. There's, there's a, there's a far-reaching consequences yeah. with that. And what can we, what can we expect with rainfall yep. and flooding? So the projections for much of Australia, rainfall is a bit of a harder one to actually project. So heat waves, we're pretty confident with our projections into the future of how much increase in temperature we're going to have. And there are some great websites out there where you can go and look at your particular suburb. Right. Um, so and find out, you know, in your particular suburb what those projections are. Rainfall is a bit more difficult because it's seasonal. You might have higher rainfall in winter, lower rainfall in summer. So over the year, the average is the same, yeah. but it's seasonal. So. We are expecting to have more intense storms and more intense um, flooding, but maybe not the frequency is, is a little bit uncertain. So same for cyclones. So for flooding, I'd certainly say that again, insurance may very well cover you to, to rebuild, but the standards may have changed. We'll talk yeah. about, I'm sure, a little while about council making regulations to make sure houses are more climate friendly. Yeah. And if the council has said, right, the floor heights have now gone up by an extra metre to yeah. accommodate future flooding and potentially sea level rise, if you need to rebuild, that might cost you, you know, a third more to rebuild than just doing a slab on ground house. Yeah. So certainly, yeah, although insurance might say we'll pay you some of the money, you might have to, you know, pay a lot more to be able to redevelop or refix up a house yeah. after an after an incident like that. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about building co codes as well. The the next the next point of the ANU study was about rain delays in construction. So there was a, a metric that comes out of the industry group and, and, and HIA that said construction performance went to thirty five point six. And anything below fifty is a contraction. So rain delays were significantly adding to construction costs and mm. I guess it's it's not just rain delays any extreme weather event is going to have an impact on construction yeah rain delays are a very common thing for for project managers and quantity surveyors to see but if we're talking about heat waves mm. that can tap into that as well yeah I'm expecting that there will be a time we'll start putting um, cut-off temperatures for outdoor workers yeah I'm sure we all remember that school we used to have this idea that if school got you know if it got to above 40 degrees they'd cancel school so that exciting. doesn't actually happen unfortunately and it would be a bit of a disaster if it did because imagine letting all these children out of school in the peak heat period to go home to work you know it, that would be chaos yeah. however for outdoor workers councils are already starting to say look you can't work outside yeah. on temperatures over so much yeah. so 
I believe that for an OHS issue, that'll start to happen in construction areas. And so, you know, in some areas, we're getting two or three times more extreme heat days over 35 degrees. And yeah, so I, I experience, I expect that we'll have not just rain delays, but heat wave delays as well for construction. Yeah, and if we think about it, you know, rain delays can cause a, a, quite a, a big change in a construct, construction cost, especially mm. if it's a if it's a project that's going over 12 months. To add heat delays that might be mm. around the same sort of amount of delays, that the construction cost impact would be would pretty big. Yeah, and I would say that outdoor workers, I mean, we'll sorry, talk about tenants in a little while too, but, um, you know, if you think about where your houses are and who's living in your houses. I mean, we want to make sure we're protecting those most at risk. And people yeah. that are outdoor workers, um, yeah, they're much more vulnerable to heat stress because they're not in air-conditioned offices during the day. Their body's not getting a chance to actually recuperate. Yeah. And there's only so much heat that our body can handle. So certainly thinking about with your houses, if that they are heat-friendly and that you have the ability to cool your houses and make your houses comfortable for your tenants yeah. is both a moral and ethical um, essential element of being a landlord. I want to get onto that. So I'm going to skip through the next couple. I mean, anecdotally, uh, I saw that um, Cyclone Yazi caused 3.5 billion in damage. Wow, They're yeah. saying that if a Cat Five hit Cairns, it could be up to 8 billion in mm. economic and physical damage. Um, we were talking about electricity um, before, and and of course, air conditioning is a big part of that. Mm. Um, we saw bushfires disrupt uh, a link between New South Wales and Victoria and cut the electricity supply by a third. This is something that investors are going to have to factor in for the well-being of, of tenants. It mm. might not be legislated now, but if you're living in areas where there are heat waves, like Melbourne yesterday, um, it was into the 40s. Wow, and know? then today they're having a huge rain dump. They're having yeah, right. like 100 millimetres, so yeah, that's that's from, yeah. I was in Cairns speaking to, to Mitch from our office and he said, gosh, it's hot here in Melbourne. I'm in Cairns, what are you talking about? It's 32, <laughs> I'm sweating. It's like it's over 40. Yeah, yeah. and that crazy. was probably still spring yesterday, yeah. Yeah, and and, and, and so with, with the higher temperatures and the electricity costs, um, you, you focus quite specifically with your studies on, on heat waves. So what's happening with heat waves? What, what, what is the, the net impact yeah. to individuals yeah. and, and do you see with properties from yeah. heat waves? A few interesting things about heat wave is that it's not necessarily about um, the temperature, but about the change in temperature. So mm -hmm. if you have a cool day and then you have a hot day, that difference can actually be quite taxing on your body. Right. And then it's about cool nights. So the projections for climate change are also a reduction in the temperatures at night time. So night time is the time our bodies can have a chance to actually recuperate. But if you're yeah. not getting below 30 degrees at night time, your body's just not getting a chance to recover. Yeah. So certainly those um, heat waves where the nights remain hot is much more dangerous to our health. And I mean, heat waves is a real untalked of um, health risk. I, we're just talking about the Black Fire Saturday, Saturday fires in, in, in Victoria. And although about 170 people died in those fires, thousands of people died from heat waves yeah. at the same period of time. So heat waves has more mortalities than any natural disaster in Australia combined, but it's often untalked about because they're the ones that are most at risk. They're the, the elderly, low socioeconomic, don't have air conditioning, don't have access to cool spaces. So um, yeah, I think, look, it's not legislated right now, but happy tenants equals happy landlord. So I also have, I feel very strongly as a moral obligation to keep my houses climate friendly for those tenants because it's their lives, it's their health, it's their well-being of their children, their pets and themselves to make sure that they have, you know, a well heat friendly house. Yeah. And that might be 
a little bit easier in Tasmania where you've got a couple <laughs> of properties. But what about elsewhere? Where like heat is one thing, but of course we've 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 got bushfire zones, we've got mm-hmm. areas where there's monsoonal rains. What are the areas of Australia that are more susceptible to these climate events and, and, and you know, I guess in turn are the areas that we might see capital growth restrictions yeah. on property prices? Yeah. Well certainly I, I wouldn't make blanket areas and say, look, all of Queensland's just a write-off, but rather it's almost by a street-by-street basis. So I live on a hill, Mm -hmm. but two streets away, they're on a flat. So if there was an extreme flood event, two streets away, they're likely to get flooded. Well, I won't. So it's certainly as a case-by-case basis. And I would recommend that before anyone buys a house, just do your due diligence. Go and have a look at your flood maps to start with. Look at your section 149, whatever the relative... um, report is in your state find out what is your bushfire risk call a few insurance agencies not just one talk to a few and say what are the premiums and just try and get a feel for as many um, different ways you can of what that risk is from from flooding from fire um, and also access roads and things you know make sure you're not buying in a suburb that's going to get totally cut off and isolated during a flood event Um, and also I would say there's a lot of positive about thinking about property under a changing climate so as you said I've been recently buying in Tasmania and I believe there's a massive growth in Tasmania because of the shifts in the climate on the mainland so not only are people wanting to avoid heat waves but so are industry and a lot of say for example wineries have moved from the Hunter Valley down to Tasmania because they just can't get the quality of wine with these heat waves yeah. and this this increasing temperature so go where the work is going if people are moving to Tasmania or to a cooler climate to be able to continue their industry that's where jobs will go as well interesting we just need another data nerd to sort of correlate Pinot Noir growth <laughs> and, and, and house prices that's so a PhD I'm willing to take on <laughs> follow the Pinot Noir well what a topic so what um yeah you're you're a you're a glass half full and there's more glasses in the cupboard and the taps sort of freely running person. So I don't want to drag you down with my negativity of the doom and gloom. What are the mitigation strategies? What are we what are we doing? What what are the positives and 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 how can we reverse these things? Yeah, that's a, yeah. So certainly climate change is a very depressing topic. I must say I don't make a very fun dinner guest because <laughs> um the conversation can be quite depressing, but. For everything that's depressing, there's a chance for action and opportunity. So in terms of property, if you have a property that is in a climate risk area, I would suggest selling because it's a buyer beware situation. The people that are left holding the the jokers at the end of the game are the ones that are going to lose. So um, I hope instead of a, a market crash, slowly, slowly by properties that are at risk changing hands, each time they may not have the same growth or they might even go down and eventually they will be priced at the price that they actually reflect the risk. So you might own a house that's in a low-lying area at risk of sea level rise, but you've paid a price that is according to the length of that property's yep. life. So certainly I think about what you have now and if you want to try and you know offload that before those things become too hard to get rid of and certainly retrofitting the houses that you have so making houses heat friendly is the big one thinking about your building materials for cyclones and for hail and that kind of thing and of course eventually insurance companies will start pricing insurance based on the risk of your actual house materials so I've worked on some great projects with Insurance Council of Australia looking at not just about where your house is located but what your house is made of and your floor heights so if you have a house that's climate friendly that isn't at risk of flooding because it's off the ground or it's got great hail proof or cyclone proof materials, you shouldn't be paying those astronomical insurances. So you can still have houses in more at risk areas, but just make sure that they are um, a little bit more sympathetic to those risks. 
So yeah, so thinking about what your houses have made from and then thinking about where you want to buy. So thinking about areas that where, where the jobs are going to go, where people are going to want to live. Um, and I mean, it's sad to say, but globally this is happening. It's not just in Australia. So we are going to have the term climate change refugees where people just can't live in their location anymore and they yeah. need to move. For Australia, that might be people that live in low-lying suburbs that find that sea level rise is encroaching in their, in their, their suburbs. Yeah. But globally, it might be, say, the whole Ganges Delta where there are millions of people that suddenly find that they can't live there too. So um, certainly buying in areas that are climate friendly, I think will have a big impact on demand over time as well as yeah. other areas feel the squeeze. Yeah, well, that's yeah incredible to, to think about. I mean, we, we hear stories about Pacific Island nations, you know, hosting climate talks because they can kind of mm. point at the sea and go, look, yeah. like it's touching our welcome mat. Yeah. But in, in Australia, like what, is there a real time imperative? Like, do you see property prices going down due to, say, sea level rise, which typically people kind of think of, you know, that's, that's a, a small incremental change yeah. that will happen over over hundreds of years. Sea level rise is an interesting one because it is a small incremental change. We're looking at, you know, yeah, two centimetres so far and we're looking at maybe, you know, um, oh, the projections are about, what, up to a metre by the end of the century. But what happens is that it creates the flood zones to be higher. So currently a one in a hundred year flood, if you add an extra 20 centimetres to that, I mean, if your topography is quite flat that could add an extra couple of hundred meters of houses that are now in a flood zone so i don't think that sea level rise is actually going to be the one that drops your property price but regulations and policy may so a lot of councils already now are starting to say look we're going to put a sea level rise notation on your property so we can tell buyers hey watch out this property is at future risk of flooding not maybe today but in the future that's an interesting thing because i mean we've 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 seen legislation come through that says you have to disclose if someone has been murdered in your Mm. house for example this might be another sort of badge that you don't really want yeah. to carry with that could really affect property Yeah, prices. exactly. And the people have complained and said that notation has significantly decreased the value of their property. But as I said before, I believe we have to have this slow incremental change to make properties valued at, to accommodate their risk. So certainly if sea level rise or climate change isn't going to impact your property in the next direct future, legislation, insurance, um, and those kind of more you know, out of your control policies may very well impact your prices. Let's talk about the building codes because I know you've had a, a, a lot of lot to do with that in consultation with LGAs and that sort of thing. We, we, we know now that if, if a house is, is demolished, when we go to rebuild, there's all sorts of different codes like you might be actually too close to the boundary and, and funny things like that. But with, with climate change, there, you won't be able to build the same thing than what you had before. So when you're thinking an insurance replacement cost that you might have your property covered for, it's not necessarily going to cover the changes in materials and and, and the way that it's done, will it? Absolutely. So with bushfire, for example, a lot of changes has happened in bushfire materials. You can't build your house the same way you used to. So if your house gets burnt down, you might find like people in the Blue Mountains found that insured their house for the value that the house was. But when you need to rebuild and it actually covers the materials that are, you know, bushfire um, more resistant, it was a much more expensive process. But um, another interesting conundrum you sort of touched on a minute ago was the idea of in um, density. So there's two different arguments. If you live in an area where there is a climate risk, so say sea level rise or flooding or bushfire, should you be allowed to increase the density of that location by adding Mm. more houses? So if you buy a house, can you add a granny flat? Can you subdivide? Can you do, you know, dual occupancy? A lot of councils are saying, no, you can't because you're adding extra people and extra pressure in this area that may not be 
supported. The flip side is the more people that live in an area, the more ratepayers there are, they're more um, motivation to protect an area. And there are protections available. They just cost a lot of money. So um, certainly, I mean, on one hand, you can't just leave suburbs to become ghettos you know climate ghettos yeah but certainly if we keep intensifying there's more people that are at risk so that argument has yet to be fully played out and yeah. i think that it's a suburb by suburb basis but local governments will change their development control plans to to make it less attractive to subdivide and you know say split the block into if they believe that they're exposing more people to these risks or mm. putting more pressure on say the storm water and, and that sort yeah. of thing so that you know the a property that has development potential compared to one that doesn't can make a big difference to the price. Absolutely. And if you've bought a property thinking it has development potential, and this has happened a lot in the suburbs that I've been working, and then you go to actually do your development, you know, three or four years later, and you find, actually, I'm sorry, you can't. Well, you know, you've spent a lot of money and now you can't actually do the development you want to do. So um, buyer beware. I think forward planning and forward thinking is really crucial. And unfortunately, the person I think that should be having this conversation that isn't is your conveyancer. But conveyancers aren't up to scratch on talking about climate science and maybe they shouldn't have to be. So the conveyancer might see that you have a flood notation but not really actually explain to you what that means. So I think that it is, again, due diligence and just a buyer beware. They need to do their own research and hopefully conveyancers will catch up. But um, I'm going to get one on now and tell them that you've trash talked them. But it's true that they they know a very specific uh, role and it's about the legal transfer of title it's not about climate science mm. and sure your, your your section 149 certificate or, or whatever it is part of the contract may need to sort of say well here, here's mm. the zoning here's the flood zones here's the, the bushfire areas but that's just really for you to kind of look at as part and of the think package. about that's They're right not qualified to advise you on that are that's they? right I they don't... can just point it out and the thing about climate change too it's it's moving goalposts so i mean a conveyancer it's like the legal system they're sort of you know working to a script but when the script changes how yeah. well informed are they about what that means yeah so climate change will continue to change the landscape it's not a static thing the house you have now may very well have a different policies around it in five years time yeah. so you can't you can't, yeah, the, t- the future is definitely changing. <laughs> and talking about the changing landscape, we've seen government intervention here. Um, poor Peter Garrett and his, <laughs> and his uh, in, in insulation scheme. I mean, in essence, that was, a, that was a good thing. Unfortunately, it was poorly rolled out and some people lost their lives, which is terrible. Mm. Um, other more positive uh, things have been the, the solar rebate. So the uptick in solar in homes, I yeah. couldn't tell you the, the figures, but just from a, a roof count, <laughs> it, it looks incredible. And, and I know there have been people that have been switching over from electric to, to gas hot yeah. water systems and getting rebates. What, what's the government been doing and what's your view on what they should be doing? Yeah, Are they yeah. doing enough? It's a great question. So solar rebates have made a huge difference. My power bill is currently very, very low. I think I, as a household of of four, we consume about three kilowatts a day. So that's really, really low. But that's because I've actually spent not that much money, but I've put on a solar panel system and also solar hot water. My tenants have done the same thing because I want to make sure that my tenants are happy and they can afford their rent. Power prices will continue to go up. And in fact, it's again a conundrum. The more people that do solar, and, and eventually start moving off the grid entirely means that that aging infrastructure is then taken up by the people that can't get off the grid. So right. as these, you know, Tesla batteries are coming in and things like that, if you're off the grid, that's great for you. What about the people that are left on that net network? So I would say that the government needs to do more to encourage landlords to invest in 
ways that we can make our, our properties more climate friendly. So yeah. insulation, solar panels, um, double glazing of windows, shading, awnings, that kind of thing. So. Yeah. And is the government providing much support at the moment with that sort of thing? As a landlord, I haven't seen it. I've seen some private um, initiatives where there's been um, private power companies have said, as to landlords, we'll install um, panels on your tenant's roof. They'll pay half the bill. We'll pay half to you. We still own the, you know, they, they obviously get a cut out of that. So these systems are coming out. But I certainly think that, um, yeah, there needs to be more regulation, really. I think t- uh, landlords need to be forced more to make these, this, um, yeah, retrofitting these houses. Because as I said, it's people's lives, heat waves. I mean, through my studies with my PhD already, I'm seeing that areas in, say, Western Sydney, you've already got low socioeconomic, you've got poor housing um materials they don't have insulation they don't have solar panels and it's also the hottest part of the greater sydney basin so we're finding that the already vulnerable people living in the hotter areas with the less quality houses i think as a landlord you have an obligation to to help that situation yeah and i hope that people do i guess think about their investing a little bit more ethically it's it's easy to say well in my super fund i want to make sure i'm investing Mm. in ethical companies because the returns are going to be roughly the same but do you want to spend $10,000 on a solar panel for your tenant because they're going to be happy and have less bills? I wonder how that conversation is going to go with investors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I love your point just there. The easiest things you can do, switch your, obviously, superannuation. That's been talked about a lot. Switch it to a, an ethical superannuation company. Same returns much better feeling about it and also your banks i mean wherever you invest with your mortgage i pay a lot of interest every year so every year i mean i might think about the charities that i donate to once a month but do i really think about the money that i'm giving to banks each year so i do i really think about that and think well do i want to give a hundred thousand dollars to an ethical bank or to a bank that's going to reinvest in fossil fuels so think about where you're investing your money and and put your loans in a bank that's ethical as well I think there's, you know, there's a little bit of the, you know, how many grains of sand do we need till we get a pile sort of thing. <laughs> and, and people don't realise that as individuals pulling together, we can actually influence policy. I mean, take Walmart, for example, they're making a huge investment in organic foods because the market is saying that's we what want we them. want. Yeah, great. And, and in chatting to financial planners, they're saying, well, people are now actually saying, and we're asking the question, and we're and we're getting good feedback from it. What do you want to invest in? Like, yeah. what's important to you? What what you know? How 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 does ethics kind of factor into your whole life? Like, yeah. if, if you buy organic hand soap, why don't you have? you know a super portfolio (laughs) that follows your same sort of philosophies and i'd say that in terms of grains of sand people that are listening to this podcast probably have a few more grains of sand than others because we've got money to invest so i you know have a large amount of um of of debt really but i have a large amount of money to move around so my voice i think is quite loud because i've got you know money talks so i think we have a moral obligation because our voices can be heard a lot louder than those that don't have the opportunity to influence banks opinion um, without having that capital behind them. Yeah. Now, getting back to investors making sure that they're buying a property that is not in a flood zone, not going to be impacted by bushfire or, or prohibitive development controls for subdivisions they might want to be doing. The conveyance is not really qualified to, to look at the planning documents. 
You mentioned that there are some websites yep. that people can look at. What advice can you give to investors on, on what they need to do or, you know, do they really need a consultant to help them with it? <laughs> it's really, I, yeah, about four years ago, I started a business called Climate Change Impact Assessments and I wanted to provide advice to property buyers about how you could, you know, buy climate-friendly property. Yep. I got almost zero clients, I've got to say. I think, right. I'm going to say I was, a, I was before my time. But certainly I believe, just like we have environmental impact assessments, I wanted mm. to see climate change impact assessments so that when you go to do an investment, you can go to a one-shop um, stop shop that actually tells you look here are your risks yeah. um, that doesn't exist right now I think that it should but there's things that you can do certainly look at the projections so say for example New South Wales there's a great website through the Office of Environment and Heritage called Adapt New South Wales yeah. go to the Adapt New South Wales website put in your postcode and you can see what are the projections for heat waves for rain for um, you know nighttime temperatures extreme heat and actually zoom right into your suburb and your postcode and have a look at what that means in your area right. Um, other things you can do is looking at flood maps. So CSIRO um, at a national scale, there are some really great sea level rise maps. And you can again look at, you know, in the next 50 years or 100 years where sea level rise may, may um, impact. Um, and other things you can do, as I said, talk to insurance companies, talk to your neighbours. If you're going to buy a property, ask the neighbours what kind of things have happened in the past and yeah. get a feel for your climate risk because you might be living there for 10 years and nothing happens, but you might find that, you know, after 10 years, it's that one in 10 year storm that finally happens yeah. and um, and your house suddenly is, is, is quite damaged. So. You need to find that sort of old chappy down the street who talks about the great flood of 66. Absolutely. I know people buy in like areas of low-lying Maitland and they've only lived there, you know. They have only have a very short memory of 10 years or so. But yeah. if a flood's happened 50 years ago, I always love the saying people say, oh, we'll go back and we'll rebuild because we're fighters. I think, oh, you know what? It's a bit of an idiot attitude to think that something that's happened isn't going to happen again. Yeah. And with climate change, it's a loaded deck of cards. It's going to yeah. happen and worse so I think actually a smart move if you are in an area that's been impacted by a flood or a fire think about possibly relocated elsewhere so yeah I don't think that you can assume that just because it's happened once it's not going to happen again yeah it's going to happen again and it's going to happen more often mm. and it's going to be more severe it's just a matter of time isn't it mm. now I um, I've seen my Al Gore documentaries <laughs> on, I'm a Bill Nye fan but I have to admit Heather I'm, I'm quite out of my depth with this whole interview what have I missed is there anything else that, that we haven't covered off that you think property investors and, and, and individuals involved in, in property and construction should know about I think you've done very well you've, oh, obviously, you. you've obviously got a bit of a, a good um, head around this but I guess the number one thing I'd like to say is be an agitator around climate change policy because, I mean, we've talked about property today, but it also has huge implications for our health, for our bio, you know, ecosystems, for yeah. a whole lot of other areas, our um, economy. So I think being an agitator, if I was, you know, if I heard that the government was going to drop negative gearing tomorrow, well, and I think a lot of listeners would start jumping up and down and saying, hey, that's not fair. Yeah. Yet when we drop things like emissions trading schemes or, you know, a price on carbon, which would actually have a huge benefit to us society as a whole we just let it slide by because it seems like it's nothing to do with us yeah. so I think that climate change isn't something that we should shy away from but we should get agitated about and actually jump up and down because yes it's our property portfolios at risk but it's also our, our lifestyle and our economy and it doesn't have to be a bad thing the GDP reduction or, or, or stabilization that it will take to actually 
invest to fix this problem, which is fixable, yeah. is, is really minor. And I think that a bit of short-term slowing isn't going to hurt a long-term you know, ability to enjoy the lifestyles that we live and hopefully to improve them. So just be a climate agitator. Don't be afraid to talk about it, to read about it. Um, yeah, and just keep yourself informed. Awesome. I think that's great advice, Heather, and I hope that everyone can, can, can get in that direction and think about the future that they're leaving to their to the children and children's children. So thanks very much for coming on. It's, it's been, been a, pleasure. a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much. Cheers.